Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Dan Shapir. Hey, hey, from Tel Aviv. AJ O'Neill. Just crying tears. Just Andy crying Knight. tears. Hey, hey, from Nashville. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Alex Russell. Alex, do you want to say hello? Hi, hello. How's it going? Uh, now, do you want to just uh, remind people who you are? We haven't had you on for a while. Yeah, I'm a software engineer on the web platform team inside of Chrome, which is a bit of a lie. I actually don't do that much engineering anymore. I kind of kind of design stuff, but I lead our standards work, and I lead Project Fugu, which is uh, trying to sort of expand the footprint of what the what the platform can do, uh, and that kind of overlaps with my sort of long-term interests in progressive web apps and uh, that sort of stuff. Gotcha. Whenever I'm stuck on what to learn next, a lot of times I just go back to the fundamentals and think about how I can make those things more automatic. The reason is, is because then when I focus on the fundamentals, I'm able to actually level up in all the other areas that I'm trying to learn. So I teamed up with Kyle Simpson to focus on the fundamentals of JavaScript. Kyle wrote the books, You Don't Know JS Yet, and his Getting Started ebook goes over just the fundamental fundamentals, so to speak, of JavaScript. And we're putting together a 30-day challenge where you can actually level up on this stuff, get it down pat, and then you can go and learn all of the other things that you're doing that are based on these things. So if you go sign up for the challenge, you can do it at devchat.tv slash bookcamp. That was Kyle's idea. You can get the following as part of the challenge. You get daily training videos, which are worth about 150 bucks. You get daily exercises and homework, which again are about worth about 97 bucks, especially with the coaching that we give you around them. You get access to the private Slack channel, which is worth about 20 bucks. You get access to a premium podcast series that Kyle and I are going to record. It's an eight part podcast series where we talk through all the pieces of the book. You'll get three Q&A calls per week, and that puts you at about a $1,779 value. And what's great is you also get then the audio from the podcast, you get the video from the training, you get the experience from working, and you get the visual reading learning from the book. So you're going to learn this in multiple ways. Once again, go sign up at devchat.tv slash bookcamp, devchat.tv slash bookcamp, and you can get it for $197. If you use the code JSJabber, you can get it for $147 instead. So go check it out right now, devchat.tv slash bookcamp. So we were chatting about what we were going to talk about on the show. And you said you wanted to talk about writing less JavaScript. And I'm sure there are some people out there going, no, right? That's, that's what we do. That's, what, that's how we make awesome stuff happen in browsers and other places. I'm curious, like what the, I guess what the pitch is on this and as far as why and what made you think about this? So I spent a lot of time working with partners. So that is, say, Google's partners and folks who are building sort of at the very edge of what the web can do. And performance has kind of ended up in the critical path for some large fraction of folks in a way that I was surprised by. Started working with teams that were developing the first sort of set of progressive web apps back in 20, 2014 and 2015. And that experience was, was unfortunately something that we've seen a lot of, where Teams would build something that worked pretty well on the bench, or rather it's sort of on the on the phones that they were carrying. And then when we started to look at how they would actually perform for end users, even before we started talking about the features that they they wanted to deliver, right? The the shiny um, animations and the notifications and you know, being on the home screen and all that kind of stuff, right? You just sort of have to get to a level of baseline this feels fast enough to be usable to make the experience that you're delivering something that users should want. And so sort of performance is 
at some level, the very front end of accessibility. So that is to say, if you can't get to it quickly, you can't access it. So all the other pieces of accessibility kind of are downstream of you know, reasonable performance. And so this has become, unfortunately, a, a fixture of almost every partner conversation wherein the devices that people have in the world are not the devices that developers seem to think that people have. <laughs> I think this has a bunch of complex causes. Not least of all, we're well paid. And a lot of developers aspire to kind of that, that very luxe experience. And so they, they themselves live in that world. And, you know, Mac shipments in terms of total number of PCs are in the, you know, single digit fraction. As a total fraction of smartphone shipments, iOS devices are they've never really broken, I think, 15 or 16 percent. Even in the U.S., iOS usage, not even device shipments, which are usage is higher than shipments. And iOS doesn't crack 50 percent. And all iOS devices are significantly faster than all Androids, just sort of as a blanket statement. So we have a, a situation now where the developers live in a bubble and are not really making common cause with most of their users. Outside the US, there are some markets where iOS penetration is, is much higher, even 60, 70%, like for instance, in the UK. But if you go to some place like India, uh, which is hundreds of millions of people, iOS might be 2%, maybe on a good day, uh, wet. <laughs> so most of the world doesn't live in the bubble. And uh, the bubble is insulating us from doing a good job by, by users. And so that's sort of just sort of on the critical path and at the beginning of getting to delivering really great experiences. So true. You use, Alex, you use the term, I think, uh, good enough performance or good performance. What would you consider to be good or good enough performance? We try to dig into some of the literature on sort of user perception. And user perception, you know, research is is squirrely. There, there are lots of sources that will have kind of vaguely conflicting accounts. One of the things that sort of joins up those vaguely conflicting accounts has been a, a hysteresis function. So that is to say, what users expect is sort of what, what they will become habituated to very quickly, right? Like it's no, no surprise that human, the human animal is, is pretty good at getting used to a new set of norms. And so we, as users, get really um, accustomed to however something feels. And so variations from that are actually very sizable. You know, the, the old saw that, you know, you don't ever feel hot or cold, just feel the difference between what your previous temperature was. So if you think about performance that way, the question is, is, I think, more accurately, is something relatively good or bad relative to your usual experience? And so on desktop, the web... The web kind of defines the baseline. Web usage is so high that people who experience a slow web page experience lots of slow web pages, and so it may maybe not is it may not be a crisis. Whereas on mobile, web usage is actually relatively low, especially as a fraction of the sites and experiences that users interact with. And so the comparison point is native apps and how fast they feel. And so if you feel significantly worse. Regardless of the absolute performance, the absolute speed, that relativeness, that relativity, I guess, to use a word, creates a, a disincentive to going back to the web. So Google, years ago now, did this sort of, I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of ablation studies, but 
the idea with an ablation study is instead of saying, if I make it this much faster, how much better will it be? You try and test the opposite and then try to understand the relationship between the, the forward and the backward movement. And so an ablation study was done wherein you just sort of add latency. You just make something slower by a fixed amount. And so there was an ablation study done to make uh, Google search slower. And, and this has been repeated a couple of times now, I think. Not all of them published publicly. But it turns out that users who experience something slow start using it less. So this is a, if it gets relatively slower than it was for them previously, they begin to use something less. And as a result of using it less, you know, they will move their time or their attention to something else. And, uh, you know, Google search isn't kind of maximizing for attention. We, we want to get you to the answer rather than have you spend all of your time with us. But this is kind of replicable against a, a large number of experiences. So if the experience that you're delivering is relatively slower than something else, you should experience, you should expect users to go to other platforms or to other ways of getting to information. If you use your the native applications as a sort of a baseline for what you think the, the performance of web applications should be, which native application should I be looking at as an example of an application that provides good performance? It's worth thinking about the loop that users experience when they're trying to get to something. So I tap on an icon and then what happens next? Uh, do I wait for five or six seconds for something to yes. come in? Or do I get instant acknowledgement that uh, the system is doing work on my behalf? It's, you know, maybe if it's putting up a spinner, it's putting up a spinner that's 60 frames a second the whole time. And then as soon as the UI is available, if I tap or if I try to interact, it's consistently interactive. So that loop actually plays itself out across all the interactions that you do inside of an application. So I go to, let's say I go to TikTok, right? If I go to the native app, it should start instantly, right? I should get the splash screen. It should animate smoothly as it's loading stuff in. And then things should continue to animate quickly. And when I tap on any button, it should respond quickly. And when I start to scroll or interact um, in some meaningful way, it should do that without any delay. And so a lot of the art here about front end is in ensuring that, you know, like <laughs> I got a friend who framed this as a 60 frames a second or it's free. That's kind of, if you think about it, like how do games work? Some people will go, well, games start really slowly. And I'm like, okay, that's great. But, you know, they will start, like they'll put something on screen quickly and they'll animate smoothly the whole time. Even the loading screen will have, you know, 60 frames a second animation. And that never changes through the entire experience of a game. You will be experiencing something that is responsive to what you did or acknowledging what you did almost instantly, even if it's putting up a loading screen. So there are these big gaps between what the web tends to deliver and what uh, our comp competition tends to deliver. And that, that reflects back on uh, our platform. I think the worst thing that's happened for the web has been responsive sites. Because it's like I've got a crippled mobile app that can hardly do anything and I can't access any of the settings or additional features. And now when I go to the web, I get a crippled web app that doesn't have any of the additional settings or features. And when I click use desktop site, it just refreshes with the same stupid mobile app. And it's kind of weird to me that like we're crippling the desktop experience and not really, I, with the apps, I mean, I use Gmail, I use, which Gmail is far better on the app than it is on the web. I'll give that. Facebook is almost identical between the app and the web. Uh, Twitter, almost identical. I mean, like the main things on the web one are that I expect 
the additional things that I need to be there and then they aren't. But I don't know. I, I like I I often go to the web browser first because it doesn't take 10 seconds to load because normally I want an activity that's a five second activity. I'm not going to spend six hours in this app, you know? So waiting 10 seconds to do three to 10 seconds worth of work isn't worth it for me. I would like, just like to comment that, you know, uh, talking, speaking about the apps you mentioned. So Facebook happens to have like a light version of their client because they realized that their native client was actually way too heavy for a lot of the mobile devices out there. They actually implemented uh, a light version that's specifically intended for emerging markets. It uses much less resources. It, it provides a, a lighter interface. It doesn't provide all the bells and whistles, but it's a much a smoother experience when you're strapped for resources. And with regard to Twitter, I have to say that I'm actually using the Twitter progressive web app, which I find mostly fairly good. In fact, nicer in a lot of ways than their actual native application, which I used to use before. I think by far the thing that's damaging about web apps versus native apps is that web apps just suck at allowing you to get what you want done done and you have to go into the native app for it to work like and i have an iphone 5s too so keep that in mind everybody's abandoned the small screens and so there's a lot of things where stuff doesn't load properly just because people are expecting that i have a seven inch screen and i don't so I'll, i'll put that in there too but you have to distinguish between situations which are kind of like what alex mentioned where there is a a web uh, client, let's say, that's intended for a mobile device, but it's just, and it's feature, and it has all the features you need, but it's just too slow, versus a situation where the company unfortunately decided to promote their native application and are effectively intentionally crippling their web based client. Amazon. So this- <coughs> Amazon. So a lot of the stuff that you want to do, it's, it's, you just can't do regardless of how fast or slow it is. Yeah, I, I'm just... I'm just I, is, Alex, do you think that speed is the major problem or is it the people just build really crappy mobile websites? A poor performing website is, is one species of <laughs> crappy website in the, uh, in, in the larger um, ecosystem. Speed is kind of just the... It's the doormat, right? It either says beware of dog or it says welcome. And so if if something, the only reason I have spent any time at all in recent years thinking about performance is that it, it is the first thing. And if it's bad, you can't even start to talk about the rest of the things. Like folks will be a little bit, I, I sometimes I get folks telling me like, why do you focus so much on first party JavaScript? And then the answer is, well, because you can't even think about third party JavaScript until your first party is in order. Right, like and until the thing really that you would uncover by removing a bunch of third-party craft is actually decent, um, why bother uh, removing the third-party craft? So, give an example, and you know maybe you don't want to speak to this because you don't want to put down anybody out there with their you know product or platform. But if you can, give an example of something where you think that speed is the issue with a web app. Because I, I clunkiness is an issue for me, but I, I can't think other than Indiegogo, which they may have fixed this now. Because they loaded like three megabytes of JavaScript, and before it would even render like what the title of the thing you were trying to look at was, and it would literally take uh, five, six, seven, ten, fifteen seconds sometimes. 
But other than Indiegogo, I can't think of anything where like speed has been a deterrent for me on the web other than the awkwardness. Like the speed of interaction is slow, but not like, oh, I can't scroll fast enough. So these things are all related and there's a bunch of there's a bunch of inside baseball here. Um, scrolling is an interesting one because browsers back in, I want to say 2010, 12, something like that, we started to, as GPUs became pretty common, the architectures of browsers changed pretty radically. And um, in a world of multi-process browsers, started to add more threads. And part of the reason we added more threads was to take scrolling away from web developers. That is to say, we believed that scrolling was such a core interaction and web developers screwed it up so much, so frequently, <laughs> that web developers couldn't be trusted to handle scrolling anymore. And so all modern browsers do what's called threaded scrolling. So that is to say, unless you go, and, and there was a bunch of API changes that needed to make this happen. You know, poor Rick Byers, who's now my boss, uh, he, he like waded through this sort of like event listener options debacle to try to get to a place where, you know, if you add an on-scroll handler, it doesn't sort of, you know, go through the main thread by default. But basically this architecture adds up being, when you put your finger down on the glass and start scrolling, we basically never consult the web page in a synchronous way. That is to say, we never stop the world and ask the web page, hey, should I be allowed to scroll? Because in so many cases, the web page may be busy with other work that it will drop frames. And so in order to not drop frames for scrolling interactions specifically, browsers generally don't put web developer code in the way between a finger down and a scroll start. There are notable exceptions to that, but it's just one indication of, I think, or an early warning sign of a trend that has now played out. So there are lots of other interactions that you do as well. Like you tap on something and maybe it's maybe it doesn't get you an acknowledgement UI in 100 milliseconds or less, right? Maybe we don't actually start to animate something out. There again, the bigger problem I see is people not doing it in the first place. And this is true of native apps. Like just not bothering to put a, um, a on-tap or on-click event that has a visual change not mm -hmm. bothering to have an animation letting you know that something's happening in the background. Like, I think it's pretty rare for me to be like, oh, that animation started late. And it's pretty common for me to be like, okay, I'm tapping six times because they didn't think to put the animation in. And I don't know whether it's registering my thumb because so often it doesn't. There's lots of inputs to low quality, right? Like we could sort of like build a taxonomy of low quality experiences and it would be a, a very large tree. <laughs> I just want to say very quickly that because this sort of loop, this interaction loop of you start to do something, the system should acknowledge you in less than 100 milliseconds and then it should get back to a moment where it can acknowledge you quickly is so deep, right? Like you can extrapolate back out and think about loading a page uh, as being one of these loops, right? A tap on a link, I type in a URL, I tap on an icon on my home screen. It's exactly the same sort of loop. I do an interaction, a system should acknowledge me, it should get the work done quickly, and then it should get back to a state where it is ready to acknowledge and, and do the work again for me quickly. And that loop uh, sort of plays itself out across a whole range of experiences. And the metrics that we've just started to highlight in the Core Web Vitals project are designed to help developers get a handle on some of the aspects of this loop. So Largest contentful paint is kind of like, you know, when when visually did you stop telling me that it was going to be done? First input delay, that is to say, if I put my finger down on the glass again, are you gonna get back to gonna get back to me with the next action quickly? Like, are you going to even potentially put up a frame quickly enough? Those are the sorts of metrics that can help us get to a, a more nuanced understanding of how it's going. 
for, for users at scale. I was just going to bring up kind of along the lines of what we're talking about here. And, you know, so I, I feel like I, whether, whether it's good or not, I tend to kind of like assume the best in most engineers. And I feel like I'd be curious, like your thoughts, Alex, like in my experience, it's kind of like a death by a thousand cuts type thing. And it's like a combination of just craft over time, but also a lot is sometimes out of the engineers, out of their control. So I mean, like a lot of third-party trackers and like a lot of times now marketing teams can go in and just easily add this stuff without engineers even knowing. And so unless you're using a tool like Lighthouse or something like that to monitor things, I don't know if engineers are always even aware that things are going on for the end users, especially too like People who have more experience browsing the web a lot of times will be using ad blockers and things like that, so they're not loading the scripts. But I'm curious, like, what percentage do you think of issues like falls in line with that type of stuff? I, I think a huge fraction. Because I, I, by the way, I think that's that's a, the, the correct analysis of the organizational systems that people are in. <laughs> Developers uh, live in a bubble, right? Because that that is that's just sort of you know human nature. And what I would expect in a functioning business environment would be managers to put constraints on behavior of the system, not not the developers, constraints on the behavior of the system so that the engineering problem becomes clear, right? Like that is to say, uh, a manager should be, you know, in tune with who the the site's users are. So let's say uh, you're a financial products comparison shopping site. That is to say, you're, you're like comparing, I don't know, insurance or something. If it's a price-sensitive market, that's going to be a bunch of users who are probably trying to save money. That probably correlates pretty well with them not being on the fastest devices and networks. And so you would imagine a manager in that situation saying something along the lines of, well, okay, uh, let's let's learn who our users are. Let's go do the study and um, research it. And I do view this as mostly a management failure. And so that's actually something that I, hopefully I, I didn't leave the wrong impression, right? I think just developers living in a bubble is a state of nature, but yep. managers failing to manage is not. <laughs> I think that's that's actually just bad management. I mean, I think that's at the core of a lot of this. Isn't yeah. so you're right in a state of nature? <laughs> it's like a higher up thing where I think whether like an architect in the company or a CTO or somebody a little bit higher up who has a broader understanding of all of the different inputs that are going into the application because they have better control over like marketing initiatives and stuff like that, A-B tests, working with QA, that kind of stuff. Like there's all these third-party scripts that can get loaded onto a page that's just death by a thousand cuts over time. Yeah, I think that's right. So, you know, you've seen us over the last couple of years do things like try to emphasize performance budgets, but budgets are only meaningful if if they make the, the questions about performance that are important to the business legible to everyone, including the managers. So, you know, the, the value of having a performance budget is not that it more accurately represents the experience to a user. It's that it gives a manager something to manage, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, but uh, Alex, I, I want to mention, we actually discussed some of the metrics you're talking about and also the concept of, of performance budgets back in episode 428. Actually, it was me who was discussing it, but I do think it's worthwhile again for you to touch on quickly what performance budgets actually mean. If you if you look at the more recent Core Web Vitals work, one of the things that is both extraordinarily useful and a little bit unsatisfying about them is that they come from uh, real-world metrics data. That is to say that they are backed by a data pipeline that actively collects information from Chrome users in the field and then reflects back to us how it's going on your site. 
And that, that has some time scale associated with it. And so that means that it's maybe not as valuable in, at development time. And so performance budgets around bench metrics can be a way for you to sort of set a line and hold it and then potentially crank down on it over time. So you'll measure metrics that are sort of proxies for that. So first input delay, it actually measures the, the user's experience of tapping on the glass and how long it takes to get a response. But you know, long tasks can be a, a proxy for that uh, on the bench. And so setting or a timely interactive. And so setting lab metrics in a tightly reproducible environment that correlate well with your field metrics, and then having a budget for those and making sure that the, you know, that, that death by a thousand cuts, as you were talking about, sort of doesn't um, actually take you down because you're watching it and you can see it coming. That, that can be an important function of a, of a well-managed development team. If I go back to the topic uh, or the title of uh, this uh, episode, which is uh, basically talking about using less JavaScript or restricting the amount of JavaScript that we're using, do you think that uh, that's a good performance budget, limiting the amount of JavaScript that the web page is downloading? I, I, I sort of want to, I mean, JavaScript is the most expensive resource class almost always. So the things that, that, are, that are bad in a, in a page load if you're just focusing on first load, right? Because you have to get through first load to get to the rest of the experience. So if the first load's bad, then well, why bother? So you, you have to start with making your first load good, right? So the set of things we should care about start with, you know, loading the page, getting, getting it on screen quickly, right? Getting, even if it's just a loading screen, like getting it up fast and getting it to 60 frames a second almost instantly, getting interactive again very quickly, and then, then all the follow-on things. And so JavaScript is, is very expensive. Fonts are the other thing that tend to really hurt an experience, but remediating font weight is usually pretty trivial compared to the work that it takes to fix something that's been broken with JavaScript. So when you break something with JavaScript, you sort of have this very careful construction of a bunch of logic, and to fix it, you have to sort of reform all that logic, whereas the font stuff tends to be more declarative, and so it's easier to fix. So in, in the spirit of worst things first, you know, less JavaScript correlates very heavily with doing a better job for the users. I think it's possible to come up with a sufficiently sophisticated architecture that would allow you to load arbitrary amounts of JavaScript and do a good job uh, for the user. I think that's that's completely reasonable. Well, Using workers we... or chunking work or delaying things appropriately, but the sort of the, the cry of less JavaScript is really just a a note that almost universally right now, having too much JavaScript correlates with a bad time for the user. We can postulate that there might be this perfect architecture out there, but no one's got it right now. When SPAs first came out, the war cry was lazy loading. And I don't hear anybody talk about that anymore. Uh, it doesn't seem like any of the big frameworks, by big I mean popular, but also big as in size, seem to support that type of ideology. What, what are your thoughts on the existing frameworks and how they help or hurt to have uh, good good JavaScript performance balanced with Less, I don't know. Good, good features. Less JavaScript. I don't know what I'm saying. Good. Ease Take of development. Me. Ease of development. Yeah, sacrificing uh, user experience in favor of developer experience. That might be a thing. I, I actually don't experience that, that to be a thing. I think this is a lie that the industry tells itself um, in order to justify a bunch of uh, priors, and that's strong language. But I think it's. I think it's not. I think it's not too strong given where we're at. I work with a lot of teams who find themselves sort of in this corner, in this coffin of previous choices about quote unquote developer experience that end them up relatively predictably 
uh, multiple quarters of remediation, painful remediation, where they kind of have to stop the world and they can't deliver features. Um, or if they can, they've got a couple people, you know, some, some large fractional tax on top of their total team size that's just trying to tread water in terms of keeping things from getting worse because they're in such a bad position while they contemplate how to actually improve things. And so if we're talking about what, what's the developer experience of that, you don't want Which to was the lie that we tell um, ourselves? That, that having more JavaScript is a better developer experience and, and therefore it's a reasonable trade-off with user experience or the correlate lie uh, or um, misapprehension. Let's, let's be more generous to this, is that you may end up with a better user experience because the developer experience was improved and therefore we should continue to focus on improving the developer experience because that will at some point lead to good UX. I, I don't believe that there's any reason to believe that that's true. To that point, and then I had a question, but I'm going to touch on this first. So one thing that I've also found valuable in my experience that I think us as developers sometimes forget is that it's not always just like, looking at each page, but looking at like a critical flow through your app and a flow that um, a user would take frequently because oftentimes it's not going to necessarily be like the flow that we're taking. But the question I had was, so with like the new Lighthouse metrics that I don't know if they're officially, I, I know that they're on, they're documented now. I don't know if they've actually like hit Lighthouse yet. Last I checked, they hadn't. But how much value is there in focusing? Like we're talking about like, you know, like the first load or something like that. But like one thing that I was interested in was LCP, largest contentful paint. How beneficial is it to kind of like isolate a portion of your app and just focus on a section like that now instead of, because it can be kind of overwhelming to focus on like an entire page. Yeah, that's a great question. I also wanted to, Amy, I just wanted to address something you, you were talking about earlier about sort of the, who is in, who's empowered to make decisions about the content of the page and kind of the, the, the ways in which developers sort of serve a lot of masters in these situations, right? I, I don't want to make it sound as though developers are doing bad things or that giving marketing the ability to add, you know, new things onto the page was a bad idea per se. It just has ended up that way. And I think in Silicon Valley, it's easy to think that, you know, engineers run the show at lots of businesses when in fact, you know, if you talk to anyone who works at a publisher, for instance, you know, it's the, it's the ad sales folks who, who yep. run things or the editorial <laughs> yep. group. Yeah. But yeah, the question about the um, the largest contentful paint as opposed to like first contentful paint, is there value in isolating a section of your page like that? So large contentful paint, the intuition there is that, you know, when, when is the user going to think that things are done? Kind of like, like when does it actually feel like it's together? So if you if you imagine I tap on a button, call it a link, and I go to another experience when does it visually speaking present itself as being done, if that makes sense? And so the intuition behind large contentful paint is that until most of the stuff on the page is painted out, it's going to probably feel like it's still a work in progress. There are definitely corner cases where that's not true. Just to, just to be pretty uh, clear about this, in Chrome and Chromium-based browsers, uh, all of the uh, Core Web Vitals metrics, large contentful paint, first input delay, and cumulative layout shift, now have RUM metrics. That is to say, you, you can you can watch these inside of your um, analytics packages and, and log them out for yourself. You don't actually have to wait on the um, uh, Chrome user experience support data to come back. So it's possible to, to measure these now. And they, they are instrumented in dev tools as well. Lighthouse, I think, 
Lighthouse 6 should include all of these. Oh, sorry, Lighthouse is a bench metric. So it's uh, Lighthouse may report against it. PageSpeed Insights will report against them if it doesn't already. So Lighthouse should yeah, uh, all the metrics for them. Just to, uh, because I recently checked. So PageSpeed Insight does in, has in fact transitioned to Lighthouse version 6, which awesome. is uh, all these web vitals. With regard to the Lighthouse version that's built into the browser itself, Chrome still has the official Chrome still has uh, version 5, but Canary has version 6 already. So we're literally a few weeks away from having version 6 everywhere. Hey folks, are you trying to figure out how to stay current with React Native? Maybe you heard the Chain React conference was canceled and you're a little bit sad about that. Well, I borrowed their dates and I'm doing an online conference. So if you want to come and learn from the best of the best from React Native, then come do it. We have people like Christopher Shadow from Facebook. He's going to come and he's going to talk to us and answer questions about the origins of React Native. We're also going to have Gant Laborde from Infinite Red and several of the panelists and past panelists from React Native Radio. So come check it out at reactnativeremoteconf.com. That's reactnativeremoteconf.com. I wanted to get back to JavaScript since this is a JavaScript podcast. Do you think, it was kind of raised by AJ, but I'll ask it more bluntly. Do you think that frameworks are in, uh, or the modern frameworks that we're currently mostly using, React, Angular, even Vue, are intrinsically incompatible with good performance and 60 FPS and stuff like that? Bluntly, no. But I, I want to push back on a bunch of the uh, assumptions that people come to this conversation with. One assumption is that people will spend enough time on your pages or on your site to justify the cost of some upfront hit, right? So, you know, I remember, I don't remember whose tweet it was, but someone said, you know, yeah, okay, maybe it's a little bit slower to load, but try cl click, clicking around a bit, tap around a bit, then it'll feel better. And the bad news about that statement is that maybe it won't, right? <laughs> like uh, we can measure that. And the good news is that it's falsifiable, right? So we can actually go look at our experiences and try to understand the average session length or depth. So uh, if you go through your Google, Google Analytics logs, your server logs, you can actually see how many clicks or taps or navigations your average user does. And so if that average session depth is quite low, the number of interactions that your JavaScript payload is gonna be amortized across is kind of the denominator to this equation of, is it worth it? And so there are a set of places where these tools whatever their weight, assuming it's sort of less than 50, call it 50 kilobytes to start with individually, they're probably, they're probably, they can probably be fine. But what can you afford on top of that is, is really the question. And so what we experience, especially with people trying to build single page architecture applications, is that they're optimizing for what in the data about their experiences is probably a corner case. It might be their intended case. So if you think about a, a shopping site with a, a series of like, you, you go search for something or you find a category and you add some stuff to a cart and you browse around a bunch and then maybe you go to a checkout flow and you do the checkout flow. That's actually a potentially pretty long session with a lot of depth. But what do most of the users experience? Do they experience that full set of transitions or do they experience landing on a product page and then bouncing? Because for many people, that first introduction to the experience is going to be whether or not they decide to go to the next one. And then it's kind of a foot race as well. And we can see it in the data. Is it actually faster to load all that JavaScript and then do something on the client side? Or is it actually faster to do a full page transition? 
you know, like this is something we can see in the data. There's no reason to leave this as a as a sort of an unquantified uh, thought experiment. We we can actually go and and mark this investment to market. And I would argue that in many cases, that it's actually just a worse investment to start with a heavyweight JavaScript framework. Starting with you know the server sending you stuff and then progressively enhancing is probably in almost every case, unless you know that your sessions are extraordinarily deep, the right way to go. So are, are they incompatible? Absolutely not. Are they appropriate? In almost every case, no. So those two stories can go forward together, you know, and, and it does require us uh, that we be able to hold both of those ideas in our mind to, to really make progress here. So now let's, let's ask another question, because I think the reason that these frameworks are popular, well, two reasons, maybe are the same reason. One, they provide documentation. Like every single time somebody tweets out into the Twitterverse, why use a framework? The next thing that pops up is, you know, sure, then tell me about the framework you built and how bad the documentation is for it. So there's documentation, and I think that leads to most developers have very little experience in the industry. Like we we went from a shift 10 years ago where the people that were in the industry were predominantly people with lots of experience to the industry being predominantly people that have very, very little experience. And frameworks give us the ability for someone who probably doesn't have the experience to do the kind of things we're talking about anyway, like measure all this performance and figure out all these things, the ability to get something up that didn't exist in the first place. But do they though? But before Alex responds, I have a, 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 I would think that, but do they though? I mean, is is uh, is spinning up a React project or an Angular project easier and simpler than just doing it, you know, plain vanilla web and a little bit of JavaScript? Is it? Yeah, I, I'm kind of I'm kind of surprised at this tendency. I mean, I, I don't think it is actually simpler. It's 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 a more it's like a box of cake mix, right? Well, maybe that's not the right example because you don't have to npm install the entire internet to get the cake mix. But there's um, like like okay, AWS is absolutely wretchedly terrible. Everybody who's ever used it agrees. No one ever says, you know what? I love AWS. It's so simple to use. It makes it so easy for me to get a deployment done. Said no one ever, right? And yet. All the junior devs are using AWS and they don't know about things like DigitalOcean or Linode or Rackspace or the solutions that have existed for the other hundred years of web development, right? So there's some sort of like marketing budget that maybe is related to it or whatever, but it, it, people can find a tutorial that says how to do this with AWS and everybody kind of arrives at, I guess, a similar solution. And so they feel better about it as opposed to People, when you think about a, a VPS, you just think it's Linux. Like you, do, you don't think of it as like, oh, I'm going to learn how to do this on DigitalOcean because there is no DigitalOcean to learn how to do it on. You're just doing it with Linux. But if you're doing it with AWS, then you have a prescribed set of patterns. You have a prescribed set of documentation. You have a prescribed set of way of doing things. So it goes from being, well, you know, you can do it any way you want because it's just Linux to, well, it's annoying, but you have to do it this way. This is the way you do it on AWS. Does that, am I, do you think I'm on target there or off target? You know, so so it's kind of a chicken and an egg problem. I, you know, people create documentation because they were trying to do something and it was really difficult, and so they did it. And somebody was good enough to or nice enough to publish the steps that they went down. 
So you're almost like saying that it's successful because it's complicated, because it's complicated, somebody documented it. So now we have documentation. So now we're all using the more complicated solution. Well, I'm saying saying that there's a prescribed solution. So like, for example, if you want to do something on Linux, there's a lot of ways that you can do it. And the debate starts to become, well, which Linux, right? So, I mean, you could just assume it's system D to start a system service, but somebody's going to pipe in and be like, well, use Arch. These things take the choices away and they take the opinions away and they give you a prescribed path. Are you familiar with the idea of path dependence? I don't, I might be, but I not, not in only that context. You'll have to tell me more. It's the concept that, you know, technology sort of evolves along an evolutionary path. And while there may have been superior alternatives it is very rare that we jump from one branch to another. We actually kind of just simply keep going with the stuff we've got, right? Like, why is our primary path into space the mechanism that was originally invented for, you know, producing mass casualty warfare by a couple of murderous madmen? You know, it's, it's not like that was necessarily the best way to get stuff into space. It's just that we happen to do billions of dollars of R&D into killing each other. And uh, that yielded some technology, and we could keep incrementally evolving it to get incrementally better. And as a result, um, that's now the most understood, most actionable path to get a kilogram of payload into space, uh, peaceful or otherwise. So uh, to to clarify, you're talking about there was gunpowder, and that gave us rifles, and then we got the assembly line process, which gave us boring, and then that gave us engines, and then later that gave us uh, propulsion through a specified diameter thing. Because what you said there was rather ambiguous, and I think that's what you mean, is the path between gunpowder and boring and propulsion. Well, specifically, you know, if if you're going to space, if you're going to space, right, like, your options are a rocket, right? There's there's no, like, rail gun, magnetic rail gun propulsion to space right now. We, We don't do that. Why not? I mean, it could be cheaper. It could be better. We don't do that because rockets won. They they won, they won a battle a long time ago, and because they won a long time ago, that's the path that we're on, right? So what you see is society. You know, internal combustion. To your earlier example, is a very similar path dependent situation where there's a learning rate to most technology stacks. That is to say, we get better at something by doing more of it, and so we collectively learn at a rate that is scaled to the amount of it we do. We see this in almost every industry. So let's say, again, trying to pull it back to JavaScript, let's say that that, uh, looking at uh, React as the modern-day killer rocket, React won the framework war. But the reality is that if I'm looking, for example, at which state management solution I'm going to be using with the React application, there's like a new state management solution coming out literally every week. So we've kind of transitioned from arguing about the frameworks we we used for rendering because that's going to be React to now uh, arguing about what we're going to be using for for state management. Uh, So I'm not exactly certain that in JavaScript you could make the argument that a particular technology is the one that's won and has the day and whatnot. I think that maybe the concept of, of SPAs has won and that has resulted in our absolute need to have a framework and... And then going back to my original argument that maybe frameworks are inherently incompatible with 60 FPS. What do you think about that, Alex? 
again, I'm sort of looking at this question of appropriateness, right? Um, if you're trying to deliver the mail, launching something into orbit might not be the right way to do it if it's just on the street. So I think that's kind of the, the situation we're in right now, where most people imagine that their, that their mail could be eventually someday orbiting the Earth and delivered to a space station. And so they are building rockets to get them there. When in fact, you know, walking or driving uh, a couple of blocks is probably a significantly more efficient way to get to what they need. And they could find out that maybe the eventual destination, destination is space and, and there's some other better way to get there to torture this analogy well beyond its breaking point. But I, I guess I'm looking at this landscape and thinking that we have forgotten. I keep thinking that front end seems to have forgotten a lot of things. And I think that goes back to the point that I can't remember who made it earlier, um, that a lot of the things that we kind of, that the old timers kind of used to know are things that um, have kind of fallen out of the teaching, right? Like I experience a lot of folks, and maybe it was AJ who was mentioning this, that a lot of folks, you know, come through what is being taught in our industry right now, and they end up with, you know, a cursory glance at CSS and some mention of the DOM and HTML, and then a whole pile of experience in some, you know, maybe it's shallow, but certainly more than they got in the other things about JavaScript tools and frameworks. Because that's where the complexity is. And so if you're going to master them, you have to do that. And what we end up with is a, is a bunch of people who, through no fault of their own, have been led into a more complex environment than they needed to. And that leads them away from mastery. That is to say, because the tools that they're being asked to operate are so fantastically complicated, it's very difficult for them to get to a place where they are able to make nuanced trade-offs because the complexity that they're swimming in is, is so so large. And I find this to be kind of the most objectionable thing about what's happened recently in our industry is that people lack mastery because they're being asked to, to, to use inappropriate tools for the job. So in the case of things like AWS, I get it because you can follow the money. AWS does all these sponsorships with the boot camps where they're like, here's a bajillion dollars for free, you know, for all your students for the first two years or whatever. I don't get why, like, I, I don't get the follow the money scenario with Reactor Angular because they're free and literally Facebook and Google just take on a burden by supporting them. They don't get anything out of it. Like the, the open source community has nothing to contribute to Facebook, right? It's, it's, Is that it's, true? I, I, I mean, argue, argue with me, but I just, that's, that's my thought is Facebook is this giant corporation. If they just keep everything in house, it's going to work better for them. If they open it up, then they have to deal with people that want to do things that Facebook doesn't do. So I, I don't have actual data on that. I am saying that out of my butt. But from the general idea that that is how, how things work in the economy is that when you specialize, then you can be more efficient. And when you start to generalize, you lose efficiencies. And if there's not an economic return on your generalization, you probably shouldn't do it. But yet... Facebook and Google are generalizing for something that doesn't, you know, Facebook yeah, has but a the specific use case, facebook.com. Yeah, but again, going back to your original point, AJ, it's not so much about what's Facebook or Google's motivation. It was more what's the motivation of the boot camps to promote the frameworks. So lots of organizations would like to have a, a population of people who understand the tools that are used inside their environment to reduce the training burden. So if you are a... Let's say you're a jQuery shop, right? If, if there were no jQuery developers in the world, then it would be very difficult for, for you potentially to imagine that you could you know, hire cheaply. That is to say, you, you would be 
hard to imagine that you could, you know, get people who understand your system and become productive quickly. You might have to go train them. And that might take some senior engineers time to go train those folks. Now, maybe they would end up being more expert, but you'd rather spend maybe some of that training time with something else. Or for an acquisition, integrating that acquisitions tools and methods into your infrastructure is a, is a, usually a long and painful challenge, right? It's, it's, not, it's not nothing <laughs> to, to transition uh, a running system onto another one. And so the minimum cultural and technology distance between those, the easier it is to have uh, a long running conversation around how to get closer uh, rather than having wars about how you should swap everything and go for one, one team's answer for this, red, no blue, no green. And so there is value. I think there, there is non-trivial value in uh, standardization, frankly, right? Like, I lead standards on the Chrome team. I, there, there is a larger than zero return for every additional co-traveler with you on the road through a particular technology thicket, even if it's you know net more costly. So there's there's benefit to companies to get on whatever the bandwagon is. And you know, like I, I've talked to a lot of managers who kind of have this backwards. They'll say things like, "Well, if we if we pick framework X, then we'll be able to hire." And then you ask them, well, what are you trying to build? And does it actually require that? And they, they seem to prejudice the idea that they'll be able to hire someone quickly or cheaply over the idea that they'll be able to deliver a better experience when the tools themselves were sold on the notion that by adopting a tool, you'll be able to deliver a good experience. So there's, like a, there's a really weird inversion of incentives that has happened here where eventually the tail is now wagging the dog. If I can take that and, and run with it a little bit. So basically you're saying that boot camps are releasing React developers because that will attract more people because these people will assume that as React developers, they'll be able to get jobs. And on the other hand, companies are indeed hiring more React developers because there are more React developers out there because that's what the boot camps are putting out. So it's like uh, this uh, loop uh, feeding itself. Well, if that's the case, and if that's kind of an inv in inevitable direction that we're going, then then maybe we should just transform the browser into, you know, build React into the browser and make the browser better at running React applications because React is one. There's a really interesting set of lines there. You know, for a long time, people said, build jQuery into the browser. And so then we asked, which one? We did build it into the browser. It's there now. Right. That happened. Well, you know, I, I helped push a bunch of those pieces forward. And what we did with, you know, making array subclassable so that you could return a list out of things like query selector all or add the find method, like those were all places where, you know, there was one step and then another, and it took too long to get there. But yeah, you would imagine that by putting some of the stuff into the platform, we could reduce the cost to use. Now there is a transition cost, right? When we put something into the platform, we pay the need to respell it. And then everyone who has, because the, the core semantics can't be the same. So for instance, if you were to zoom out a little bit and look at React, for instance, you would um, look at JSX and go, okay, so that is a probably not even a sound grammar that is a proprietary fork of both JavaScript and HTML. Right? Like the HTML parser can't parse JSX because it's not correct. JavaScript uh, inside of JSX is actually not JavaScript per se, or, or rather it's not so well specified that we could determine whether or not it is. So there would be the need to respell things in that way. And so what we will probably get out of this is a good acknowledgement that 
functional reactive programming and data updates are a good idea, that we need better primitives to do it, and a differently spelled uh, sort of set of affordances to make that more reasonable. And so if you look at things like Preact or Lit Element or even Svelte, we're getting uh, lots of explorations that are significantly lighter in terms of how they they take those syntaxes or similar syntaxes and, and make them work on top of the platform. And as we improve the level of abstraction of the platform, or rather like the, the fidelity with the things people want to do on top of it, that actually sort of tends to have a generational effect with regards to the libraries that were papering over a previous world. So React came on the scene in, what was it, 2013, 2014? And it was primarily targeted at Facebook's needs, which at the time included IE8 and 9. And so there are large pieces of React today that don't make any sense in the world that we're in, right? Like if you're going to say, if you're going to pay some JavaScript cost in your library to reach an additional fractional user in 2020, that would not be an IE8 or 9 user. It would be a user on UC browser or an old version of UC browser or Opera. It actually would be, which are significantly larger populations than the IE8 and 9 user base. So we've got this sort of weird situation today where as the stack itself moves, some of these sort of baked in choices are going to look more and more out of line with what the platform can do. And every developer has a choice about whether or not those are the right trade-offs. And so what we are going to keep doing is, is upgrading the platform to, to handle more and more use cases. And my hope is that the libraries will come along, right? Like we've seen this with Angular. Angular Elements is great. Uh, they've lightened up a bunch of stuff with Angular Ivy. Uh, that's been outstanding. Vue continues to do a good job here of, of being a pretty thin abstraction on top of what the platform does. And, you know, I think Lit Element is probably even the closest there where, you know, it's really just using the, the string interpolation stuff we put into ES6 in a really clever way. And that's getting us really good performance, but without sort of the need to actually fork the whole uh, space of, of the syntaxes and the grammars. So yeah, it's interesting. We'll see how it plays out. But um, you know, sometimes these tools get uh, themselves into an evolutionary cul-de-sac and they can't get out. So we'll see what happens. So again, if I take this the whole circle back, uh, how much JavaScript is the right amount of JavaScript? Six grams. <laughs> I would try to do that on a per interaction basis. So again, sort of if we think about this core loop of interactions, uh, I, I do something, the system responds, it finishes the task, and then it gets me back to a place where it can do something for me again. How much JavaScript is, is in the way between those? Or rather, how much does JavaScript cost you to go from state A to, to B to C to D to back to A? And so, you know, looking at the population of devices that are out there right now, looking at the population of networks, I'd suggest that you probably can't afford more than, you know, maybe on a, on a heavy interaction, like a page load, more than 100, 150 kilobytes of resources total. And so your JavaScript should be that maximum. You just um, priced out some, Angular by like 10x. Angular Ivy, Angular, Angular, what, Angular 8 is significantly better than that. Like they're down to like, they're down to like 20-ish K total to get out of the box. Uh, to clarify, okay. you're talking uh, G minified gzipped, not uh, the raw JavaScript, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that's right. So minified gzipped oh. on the wire, right? Cost on the wire matters. It's unfortunate that some of these aren't actually apples to apples. React, uh, whatever its network size, is actually very expensive. Its diffing algorithm is, is 
pretty inefficient even compared to other virtual DOM systems. So its CPU costs are higher for the same amount of work than other frameworks. But like I think as a ballpark, uh, per interaction, 50, 50 kilobytes gzip on the wire is about right per interaction. That'll get you, you know, kind of what you want. And if it costs more than that, it, you know, and, and again, you can sort of look at this and go, well, if I, my average session depth is two clicks or two taps, and I've got 300 kilobytes of JavaScript, can I ever get below that 50K per? Probably not. If my average session depth is 100 taps or 100 clicks, then it's 300K up front and then 5K per, uh, that's pretty good, actually. That, that's a that's a pretty good that's a pretty good uh, net out. So I'd be looking at it that way. Cool. Thanks. So one thing that I'm wondering about is, you know, we're talking about okay, this is how we solve these particular problems under these circumstances right now. But what I'm wondering is, is do we get to a place where this either isn't a concern or where this is just a commonly accepted practice that people take into account as they work on things? And how do we get there? I spent a lot of my time trying to understand the total landscape, like globally, about devices and networks. I, I finished a doc not too long ago internally, trying to chart out, and I'll probably turn this into a blog post at some point soon, trying to chart out what I think uh, a developer should be targeting as the sort of 75th and 90th percentile devices next year. So this time, a year from now, if let's say you started a project today um, and you were launching in a year, how much could you afford, right? So what is what is that? I mean, median kind of is not very useful. Average is totally useless. So if you look at the higher percentile, 75th percentile, 90th percentile, because like those are going to be your marginal customers, marginal users, those are a moving target right now. So device prices continue to fall at the low end of the market. And what that has meant has been two things. One, there are devices being sold whose whose names or brands are are kind of a mystery to most of us. I don't know if any of you have ever used I don't know, one of the new Nokias or an Alcatel or a, uh, a Geo device um, or a Xiaomi device. Now, these things are moving in the tens or hundreds of millions of devices a year, and none of them break $200, $300 new unlocked. And so that segment of the market has been basically frozen in time since 2015, 2016 in terms of specs. So I think the, the device spec next year is going to look very similar. It'll be, the good news is there's more memory coming online. So a two gigabyte device with eight cores clocked at about 1.5 gigahertz A53s, which looks shockingly like the Moto G4 that I was sort of recommending that folks get uh, back in 2016, which then was about a $300 device. Those same specs are now showing up in devices that are sub $100 new unlocked, and in some cases, well sub $100. And they're moving in extraordinary volumes. And so there will probably be a future where we get the saturation for smartphones. That is to say, all the people who would like a smartphone can have one. And at that point, the specs will start to improve on, you know, at, at the higher percentiles. Now, we're not quite there yet. The, the market landscape in, for instance, India is still, uh, last year, it was still majority feature phone. I think it will have tipped into... Uh, majority smartphone this year, but only just. And so there's still a lot of headroom here on devices getting cheaper before they get faster. So I'm hoping that in a couple of years, we'll actually start to see significantly faster chips moving to smaller process nodes in terms of fabrication, and that the better battery and networks will, will get us to a good spot. The bright spot in this picture 
is that you know while you may have to focus on a relatively inexpensive device, the networks seem to be improving more or less universally across the network. So even in places where 3G was tough, slow 4G is actually turning into more or less the baseline reality for next year. So that's that's good news. So we'll be able to afford a little bit more because one of the big factors of a, of a big payload is the time it takes to get you there. So as long as we you know keep our keep our JavaScript, I want to say initial bundles sub 200 kilobytes for a site launching next year, I think I think we'll be in in a reasonable spot. But again, I, that that's sort of not where we are today collectively as a as an industry. So there's there's a long way to go. What is the number that you are seeing for us collectively as an industry? Well, the web page, uh, you know, the, the HTTP archive uh, showing us that about the median is about 400k of JavaScript per page for mobile sites. So we are about double where we currently should be. And growing. Uh, actually, um, sorry, I would say that if you are launching right now, uh, your budget's much smaller because the network's actually not improving that fast. You should probably still be in the 150k range. So we'll probably get ourselves a, another 50k um, in the next year or so, but that's going to require continued progress on network deployments. It just occurred to me that one way to solve it is uh, making apps slower, because as you said, we kind of uh, compare try compare things to other things that we know, and thanks to technologies like uh, React Native and stuff, we're moving JavaScript into the native apps. So maybe that's our way out. <laughs> yeah, make everything slower, and people will yeah. get used to it. <laughs> that's crazy. All right, I'm going to push us into picks. Alex, before we do that, if people want to follow you or you know read up more on this stuff, where do they go? So web.dev has the latest for pretty much everything that our team has been working on. Both uh, my team, my Fuku team's work in terms of new APIs, but also Core Web Vitals and some new tools to measure them, as well as some guidance about how to measure them if you're going to like do your own RUM analytics there. So I would check that out. We are trying to provide good RUM measurements to you, but getting getting a good result on the bench is great. So I would check that out. If you'd like to ask me questions, I'm infrequently.org is my blog, and I'm on Twitter at slightly late. If you are doing public sector work and you would like some performance consulting, hit me up on DM. I would love to hear from you and help you out. Awesome. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker, I don't want to deal with Kubernetes, I don't want to deal with setting up servers, I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from The Food Fight Show, and we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of The Food Fight Show, where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. 
All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Amy, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I have them ready today. I was trying to think of ones that would be related to what we're talking about. And this is just something quick that I've used in the past by the Zeit folks, which I guess now are, I don't know how you pronounce it, like B-E-R-C-E-L. So I'm probably doing something bad by calling them Zeit, but now those folks, but it's just called Packagephobia and the address packagephobia.now.sh and just let you check the size of your node modules that you're installing, what they're going to be when you install them locally, and then the size, the published size as well. And then let's see, the other thing that I was going to pick, if I can find it, I was just looking through my phone. Something that I've been using recently for just like general pictures and stuff like that, that you can use without any copyright issues, but it's an app called, it is Unsplash. And it's just something I have on my phone if I ever need like a quick image of something to use as like a placeholder or students for like demo projects, stuff like that. And that'll be it for me. Nice. Dan, what are your picks? You know, we've been talking a whole lot about the size, the amount of JavaScript. We actually kind of circumvented, I think one of the main causes for large JavaScript downloads, which are NPM and Webpack. And just to point out that there are actually quite simple tools that can be used, like the Webpack Bundle Analyzer, which is definitely something that needs to be like in the forefront of anybody who's uh, building applications for the web, just to be aware how much JavaScript you're actually downloading to the clients, because I've seen situations where people just literally accidentally and without them being aware, downloaded huge packages because they may be bundled the same library three times because it's different versions or, or amusing quote unquote stuff like that. So, so definitely uh, watch out for how much JavaScript you're pushing out, not only intentionally, but also definitely unintentionally. The other thing that I wanted to pick is I actually, it just came out. I was interviewed a few months back by the IT Career Energizer podcast. And thank you, Amy, for suggesting me to to, to them. Phil oh. Burgess, I think, is is the guy that uh, runs it. It's I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. It's a great podcast. It it like people it brings on people in tech from different stages in their career to talk about their path and provide uh, suggestions and talk about their highlights and lowlights in their career it's usually like 20 to 30 minutes per episode so it's it's pretty short and sweet and uh, and like i said i was there i enjoyed it a lot and hopefully maybe our listeners will be interested in what i have to say about that as well so those are my picks for today all right aj what are your picks okay so I think I think it was last time I picked this, but we didn't actually press the record button. But so for people that are doing recording and you want to be able to use HDMI, like for example, if you have a DSLR that you want to use as a webcam or 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 game live streaming or whatever it is, I've bought three of these things to try to, you know, see if there's a good, fairly low cost option. And I have to say the Flint 4KP, which stands for P is for pass-through, not for capture, but the Flint 4KP, it's like 160 bucks. I'll put a link here. It seems to be the best bang for buck capture device. It it works every time. Like it's not one of these finicky ones where like you gotta unplug it and replug it and unplug it and replug it and adjust the settings and close the app and open it again. Like none of that garbage. 
it it happens to have a defect that many people will will find to be a benefit is that the manufacturer perhaps accidentally shipped it in debug mode, which means that it will record from any source, such as a PlayStation 4, without having to fiddle with settings or do lots of challenging hackery. You, it's just plug and play for any device, uh, regardless of the version of HDMI that the device has. Records 1080p at 30 or 60 frames, has a U, no, YUV mode, so that you don't just get like grainy, dark red MPEG images from a cheap encoder. You can actually get the raw images and let your computer do the encoding. So after trying one that was like $70, one that was $130, and then this one that's $160, I mean, it's just heads and tails, heads and shoulders. Yeah, heads and shoulders, whatever. It's just, it's so, it's up there with the the $300 plus capture cards from, from all that I can tell and its stability and its picture quality and its color quality. So I'm just going to leave that there for anybody that's looking. I think that it's absolutely great. Super excited. To, to have it works with OBS, works with Zoom. Although you have to do this little trick now with um, virtual cameras. If you're using OBS and Zoom, you have to do a little code sign, remove signature for the new version of Zoom until they fix this bug that causes virtual cams not to work. But anyway, I'm on the latest version of Zoom and it's working. Not that you have to use it that way. If you're not using OBS, you can use it direct and it's fine. But if you are using OBS, for anybody that knows what that is. And then the other thing that I wanted to pick is just... Man, it's just such a a harsh political climate right now. And I've tried to get like actual statistics and facts from people and like reputable sources to I kind of understand what that what what's the state of the world. Because one of the things, you know, like the first thing that you have to do if you want to fix fix something is you you gotta figure out, you know, you have to admit that you have a problem and, and start looking at where that problem is. And uh so I just wanna I just wanna point out that that by and large, along pretty much every metric. The, the the world has been getting better. I think we've taken, you know, people are, people are hungry, people are not being able to pay rent, people are getting sick. So I think we're in a, a really bad physical and emotional climate, and I think it's escalating some of these tensions. So I expect this year, you know, maybe it won't look as good as it did last year or the year before. But if you look at the, the Bureau of Justice Statistics data, and I'm going to put a, a link there for that, and you look at it over the past, you know, say, 10 to 20 years, things are getting better across every metric that, that it seems that people care about. Like, so just, just a little message of, of positivity. The, the facts that we have say that things are getting better. Yeah, I have to say, to chime in about that, because it kind of relates to something that Alex said at the beginning of this podcast, which is that people don't look at absolute Values, so they don't look at how good this year or the or the previous year was as an absolute thing. They look at it comparatively, and people get used to things. So the fact that it's better than it was, let's say, a hundred years ago, doesn't you know, reduce the expectation that people have for it to be even better than that. And also, I I have to also so to say that the goodness was is not spread evenly enough or at least a lot of people expect the things to be more equal so, so yeah i mean when you when you though, look at even though 
it's objectively better, let's say, that it was, let's say, in the 40s or the 50s, you know. Or 2005 or 2016 or 2018. Again, it depends to whom. But at the end of the day, people want it to be better than it currently is. Undoubtedly, the whole thing about Corona was a catalyst for a lot of the things. But, but anyway, again, like you said, I don't want to get too political, but that's just my two cents on that. Well, yeah, I mean, and we're off topic. Alex needs to jump off. Did you want to shout out about anything as a pick before you go, Alex? Uh, webpagetest.org slash easy is the simplest and fastest way to really understand in a controlled way, in a controlled setting, um, how your webpage is really, really doing. Um, it now integrates a bunch of the new dev tools and vitals metrics. And Pat Meenan is a genius. So uh, webpagetest.org slash easy uh, for your reproducible, physically isolated, network isolated, physical hardware isolated traces and analysis. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming, Alex. Um, thanks for having gonna, me. Th- yeah, I'm going to throw in some picks myself. So the first pick I have is, yeah, through this whole thing, mostly, I'm, I mean, it, it kind of borders on the political, but mostly I've been talking to a lot of people, people that I know I agree with, people I don't agree with. And just seeing where they're coming from. And it's interesting. It's been interesting just to understand first how people feel about this and why they feel that way. And then the other thing is, is it's given me a lot of stuff to just go look at. And so, you know, I, I think I think if we can have those conversations without feeling like we have to be right or wrong, I think it makes a big difference just to, you know, kind of talk about what AJ and Dan are getting into. Cause I, I think there there are facts out there that that back up different perspectives in different ways. But if we honestly look at them, you know, then we can have the conversation, okay, you know, what's actually going on and start solving some of these issues and understanding each other. The other picks I have, so I've been doing this challenge and I think I picked it before, the One Funnel Away Challenge. I'll put a link in for the One Funnel Away Challenge. But anyway, it's basically a marketing challenge. And it's been really interesting because it's made me think about a lot about how we do sponsorships here and how I work with sponsors to help them get their message out. But it's also made me think about you know where I want to go and what I want to work on. One of the things that I've been working on for a while and I'm, I'm getting close to wanting to launch it is the podcasting course. That's not the pick actually. One of the things they tell you to do is to release every day for 365 days. And so anyway, I started a new YouTube channel. The name of the channel is PodWrench because that's the tool that I've been working on for the last while that I'm hoping to get launched at the same time as the course. But anyway, I've just been doing a video every day and just talking about some of the issues around podcast, podcast sponsorship, you know, making content and things like that. So if you're interested in that, you can go check that out. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And then the other link that I, or the other thing that I want to put out there is I have a friend from high school that works for Brandon Sanderson, the author. And helps him with his like people order fan stuff off of his website, you know. So they sell t-shirts and socks and books and signed copies of the books and all kinds of other stuff. He also helps him run his launch events. They have a launch event coming up in like six months for the next book that's coming out, which is the next book in the Stormlight archives. And so anyway, it was really great to go over there and actually see their operation. So I got a tour of what they call Cosmere House which is the headquarters for Brandon Sanderson's operations. And it was super fun. I, they, they wouldn't let me take pictures, unfortunately. But I came home with a big pile of books, a pair of Doomslug socks, if you've read Skyward and Starsight. 
and just in general had a terrific time. So I'm going to pick Cosmere House and Brandon Sanderson. And then I'm also going to shout out about the communities they have. I didn't realize these were there, but 17th Shard is the official Brandon Sanderson web fan website. And it's got a forum and other places where you can interact with folks. And they have a Discord server as well. And so I've been having fun just kind of nerding out with a bunch of other fans. So yeah, so really, really, really enjoying that. So those are my picks. And Alex is gone, but we'll thank him again. And until next time, folks, Max out. Bye. Bye. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.